0: Sisters and brothers, in our Lord Jesus Christ, it's become a part of our regular yearly rhythm here at Community Christian Reformed Church to take some time every fall to explore through the scriptures what it means to be the church. This is an important part of our identity, an important part of who we are as the body of Christ, the center of our identity. And so every fall, when September rolls around in the morning services, we explore the theme of The church? What does it mean to be the body of Christ? What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? What does it mean to be the covenant community of God's people? Marked by baptism, fed at the table of the Lord, washed by the blood of Christ, renewed and refreshed and transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, And so every year, we take a look at these questions by turning to the scriptures and by studying these themes together in our Sunday morning services and in our community care groups. And this year, to do that, we're going to be looking at the book of Revelation. And so from now to Advent, we're going to be reading and exploring and meditating on Revelation 1 through 4. The book of Revelation is this awesome, epic transformative visionary book by the Apostle John, which he wrote as a response to a vision that he had while in exile on the island of Patmos. And this book is awesome. This is an awesome book. The book of Revelation has dragons and mythical creatures and epic battles between angels and demons and bowls of wrath being poured out and trumpets of judgment and martyrs and saints. It's epic, it's fantastic. It's almost too fantastic. And we can see from all of the books and the talks and the movies that there are a wide variety of interpretations of the book of Revelation. And I mean, a a really wide variety of interpretations. We have everything from like Armageddon doomsday to like happy hippie paradise kind of variety going on when it comes to the book of Revelation. And so there's a couple of guiding principles that I think we should lay out before we dive into the book of Revelation. And the first of these is that the book of Revelation is at its core exactly what it claims to be. It is a revelation. It is a revealing of things for what they are, not for what we'd like them to be or what we think they ought to be, but for what they are. The ancient church writers have us imagine the book of Revelation sort of like a curtain being drawn back to reveal what's going on on the stage. And the reason they present it this way is because we We human beings have a a real talent for writing history the way that we want it to seem. We present things and we tell stories in a way that makes us look good instead of revealing things for the way that they really are. And these are things that we've started noticing and that disciplines like history and sociology and psychology have started addressing that, that we tend to write our own story and that the story of the world tends to be written by the people in power and doesn't always reflect what's really going on underneath. History is written by the victors, as the saying goes And when you think of the setting of the book of Revelation, this becomes really important because John is writing at a time when the early Christian church is suffering from persecution from the Roman Empire, mostly because Christians believed that Jesus was the one true king over all the earth, and Romans believed that Caesar was the one true king over all the earth. And so the Romans, when they suspected that someone was a Christian, would bring them to one of the imperial temples devoted to the Caesar cult and would ask them to swear allegiance to Caesar as the one true king over all the earth. And that's, of course, something that the Christians couldn't do. So the book of Revelation is written at a time when the Roman Empire is telling one story. The story about how the gods had endowed Caesar with the the ability and the right to rule over all the earth. And Christians were telling a very different story, the story that God, that the one and only God who created the heavens and the earth had defeated his enemies through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and was coming back to establish his kingdom on the earth. And what you have in the book of Revelation is a sort of unveiling of the Roman story, a revelation of the Roman story for what it really is. The the book of Revelation rejects the Roman narrative and presents a counter-narrative, an alternative story, one that lays bare the Roman story, exposing it for what it is, a, a, a fabrication of lies intended to keep Caesar in power. And so the book of Revelation then reveals what's really going on in world history. And what's really going on is this cosmic war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And it's a war whose end has already been decided because of the decisive victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's what the book of Revelation reveals. That's the core teaching of the book of Revelation, that God is in control. And that in Christ, God has already won the war. And though the battle may rage on, those who are in Christ can face the future without fear because their victory is sure. So that's the first thing that we need to remember about the book of Revelation, is that it's, it's a revelation, it's a revealing of what's going on behind the curtain, so to speak. The second thing that's important for us to remember about the book of Revelation is that it is a letter. The book of Revelation starts out as a letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor, to the churches of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. The whole book is a letter to these seven churches and in chapters two through three, Christ addresses each church individually and that's what we're going to be focusing on throughout this series is focusing on Christ's letters to these individual churches. Christ writes to them and and encourages them in the faith, but also challenges them to recognize their faults and turn back to him uh, in repentance for forgiveness. In writing to these seven churches, though, Christ is addressing the one church, the one holy Catholic apostolic church found throughout history across the face of the earth, the number seven is one of those numbers that we need to pay attention to when we see it in the Bible because it's the number of perfection. And so whenever we see the number seven, we, it should sort of make us stop for a moment and go, wait, what, what's that doing there? Because it's, it's used very intentionally. Um, and the reason that seven is such an important number in Jewish thinking is because the number seven is a combination of the numbers three and four. In Jewish thinking, three is the number of God. And you see this even in the Old Testament, that, that I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am he who was and who is and who is to come, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So three is the number of God, and four in Jewish thinking is the number of humanity. Because you have the four corners of the earth and the four winds and the four cardinal directions, things like that. And so, so three is the number of God and four is the number of the earth or of humanity. And so when you have these two numbers coming together in the number seven, it's symbolically the, the coming together of heaven and earth, which is really, really cool, I think. Um, That's why the number 12 is important in Jewish thinking, too, because it's 3 times 4. So 3 plus 4 is 7. 3 times 4 is 12. So when you see these numbers, these numbers in the Bible uh, are intended to reveal to us about what's happening when heaven and earth come together. They're intended to reveal to us how God is working on the earth. I just thought that was really cool. So by writing to these seven churches, even the earliest interpreters of the book of Revelation recognize that in writing to these seven churches, Christ is addressing the, the whole church, the, the, the one holy Catholic apostolic universal church, which is a big part of why the book of Revelation came to be part of our Bible, because right away people recognized that through it, God was speaking to the entire church. And in each of these letters to the churches, Jesus addresses them very personally. He encourages them in what they're doing well and calls them to account for ways in which they've strayed from the truth. In a lot of ways, Jesus is challenging their take on their story. These churches have told their story in a certain way, and Jesus encourages them where they're on the right track and corrects them where they're wrong. And so that's why throughout um, throughout the series, we're going to be doing the confession and assurance after the sermon instead of before it like we normally do, because in these letters, Christ calls the churches to recognize and repent of their sins. And and that's sort of what we'll be doing throughout this series, is is sort of reshaping our narrative, allowing God to reshape the way that we understand ourselves uh, together with these churches in Asia Minor. But before we can do that, and this is A genius sort of part of the book of Revelation. Before we can start to reshape our identity, before we can start to correct who we think we are, we have to begin with our understanding of who Christ is. And that's where the book of Revelation begins, with with Christ, with Jesus. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what is soon to be. In this introductory chapter to the book of Revelation, John describes this amazing visionary encounter with the risen risen Lord, uh, a spiritual visionary experience that breaks all expectations and rewrites the script. There's this sense of awesome wonder that permeates and saturates this whole chapter of the book, And, and, and this sense of wonder carries throughout the rest of the book of Revelation the very end. And we get this sense throughout the book of of being captured, of being enraptured in, in breathless wonder, in silent amazement, in overwhelming awe, as the whole history of heaven and earth plays out in symbols and pictures and fantastic images as God reveals himself in Christ as king over all the earth. John invites us in this first chapter to see Jesus anew, to imagine Jesus anew. And this is so vitally important because we have a tendency to imagine Jesus in our image, to fit him into a box, to make him into something that's comfortable and familiar. And the easiest way to do this is to make Jesus like us. And so in North American culture, we tend to have a Jesus who is white, who's about middle class, who's soft-spoken and gentle, uh, who's a people person, who fits our ideas of what a good leader should be, that he has a clear vision, that he's relational, that he's a clear communicator, that he's an extrovert. We imagine Jesus as something that we're comfortable with, something that we're familiar with, someone who is a lot like us. And in a lot of ways, this really shouldn't surprise us. We're taught throughout the New Testament that the church is the body of Christ, that the people of God find their identity in Jesus, that as Christians we are called to be like Jesus, that that, that we are called to follow him, to be transformed by him, to be his ambassadors, to reflect his image. But we are human. And so it's very easy for us to fall back on that very human tendency of creating God in our image, rather than being shaped into His image, because that can hurt. That requires change, and, and change hurts. God calls us to be like Jesus, but that's a lot easier to do if Jesus looks and is a lot like us to begin with. Makes things easier. But the opening chapter of the book of Revelation invites us to see Jesus in a new way. And in this new revelation, the book invites us to see ourselves in a new way. John hears a voice telling him to write down what he sees for the sake of the church. And when he turns to see the voice, he sees Christ. But it's not the Christ we're familiar with. It's not the Christ that we see in the Gospels. This isn't the incarnate human Jesus, the meek and mild Jesus. No, John sees Jesus revealed in glory and power, in terrible glory and power, holding seven stars in his right hand and shining like the sun, his head and hair white as snow, shining with a terrible, blinding brilliance, dressed from head to toe in a royal robe, girt about the chest with a golden sash, His eyes burn like fire and his feet glow like burning bronze and his voice is like the crashing waves of the ocean and his words are like a double-edged sword. This is a very different picture of Jesus than what we get in the Gospels, a terrifying picture of Jesus. And John is terrified and he falls on his face like a corpse. John recognizes that he is in the presence of God himself. And like Isaiah in the Old Testament, he recognizes that he is not worthy to be there, that he deserves to die for gazing upon the glory of God's holiness. And so John falls to the ground as though dead, falls to the ground in fear before this terrible vision of Christ. And Jesus this terrible, frightening Jesus reaches out his hand and touches his disciple and says do not be afraid. And then Jesus goes on to rework John's imagination again. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and to Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will come to pass. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John falls to the ground in fear, but Christ assures him that he does not need to be afraid. Christ is the beginning and the end. Christ is the one who has gone down into death and come back victorious over the grave. Christ is the one who has control over life and death. Christ is the one who holds the angels who watch over the church in his hand. And Christ is the one who gives light to the lampstands that surround him. It's so beautiful. To the Apostle John, who's suffering the wrath of the Roman Empire, Jesus reveals himself as the terrible, glorious emperor of the universe. And to John's response, which is fear, Jesus speaks a word of comfort. The whole point of the book of Revelation is that whatever the Roman Empire might claim, whatever the Roman Empire might do, Jesus is in control. He is the first and the last. He is the word through whom God spoke all of creation into being, and he is the end of all things in whom all things find their rest. He was dead, but now he is alive forever. He is the living one who has endured suffering and death and defeated them He has taken control of human destiny away from death and hell. He holds the angels in his hand and commands them to care for his church. The first chapter of the book of Revelation is abundantly clear. No matter how bad you may think things are, God is in control. And Jesus is God. In this first chapter of the book of Revelation, John invites us to see Jesus anew, to see him as glorious and terrible, to see him as the true king of the cosmos, the emperor of the universe, to see him as the one who controls the fate of the whole world, to see him as the only one worthy of our trust, of our faith, of our hope. And by inviting us to see Jesus anew, John invites us to see ourselves in a new way. John invites us to reframe how we see and how we understand ourselves because we can't begin to understand who we are in Christ until we understand who Christ is. In a day and age when the world tells us that we are the center of our own little universe, John tells us that Christ is the center of the universe. In an age that tells us that we have to take control of our own destiny, John tells us that Christ holds our destiny. In a day and age that tells us that we have to create meaning and purpose in our lives for ourselves, John tells us that there is one who gives meaning and purpose to life. John tells us that he speaks into our fear, into our exile, into our death, touches us with his powerful hand and says, do not be afraid. This is the Christ who we worship. This is the God who we adore. And this is the one in whom we find our identity. And over the next weeks and months, we'll be exploring that through these letters to the churches. But that's where it begins. It begins with this vision of Jesus Christ as the emperor of the universe who holds the keys of death and of Hades, who holds the angels in his hand and commands them to care for his people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. Oh, Lord our God, we thank you For this great and terrible vision of Jesus Christ that you gave to the Apostle John Lord we are in awe of your glory and of your majesty and Lord we pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to us now to convict us of our sin and to lead us in the way of righteousness in your name we pray Amen You may be seated. We are called to confession by Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my consecrated ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice and the heavens proclaim his righteousness for God himself is judge. When we are confronted with the righteousness of God. Like John, we cannot help but fall on our face and plead for his mercy. And so, in that spirit, please pray with me. O Lord our God, great and mighty, we tremble in the presence of your holiness. Like the prophet Isaiah, Like the Apostle John, we fall on our faces before your throne because we come from a people of unclean lips and all of us have sinned against your holiness. Forgive us, almighty God, when we do not recognize you as king over all the earth. Forgive us for chasing after the pleasures of this world rather than seeking your face. Forgive us for trying to make you more like us when you call us to be more like you. Send us your Holy Spirit to heal us from our sins and to transform us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the living one who was dead but now lives forever and ever. In his name we pray.